1221 of your pew Bible. Music. Music is one of the greatest gifts to the church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Pharaoh's army was destroyed in the Red Sea and the people were finally free, Moses wrote a commemorative hymn recorded for us in Exodus chapter 15. Then Miriam, a prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine and with the women she danced and she sang. Sing to the Lord, she said, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Generations later, at another time of great progress in God's plan of redemption, God once again raised up singers, musicians. David's throne was nothing less than the setting up of the throne of Messiah on earth. And as David's throne is brought into place, right across the street, right across the street, a second throne was going up. God's temple begins to take shape. The temple is fashioned to appear as a new Garden of Eden. And in the deepest recesses of this new Garden of Eden, a throne is covered by cherubim in the Holy of Holies. Such a time, the coming together of two thrones on one mountain in Jerusalem, such a time demanded a new song. And so the Spirit was upon David and Solomon and godly priests of that temple who wrote a book of songs which we call the Psalms. The Psalms. Many years later, when that temple was about to fall, we have the promise of a new song. Isaiah saw so clearly the fall of Israel and the misery that was coming. But in that darkest moment, in the horror of what was about to happen, he saw as never before the start of yet another new song. A song that would break out as the suffering servant became the final temple and the final sacrifice for sin. And so Isaiah commands the faithful remnant, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Is it any wonder then that we have a treasury of beautiful Christmas carols? It makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection have generated a volcano of songs. Thousands upon thousands of songs have been written. The greatest musical minds of all time have given their talents to make songs about Christ. Some of them were not even believers, but they couldn't seem to help themselves. They felt, as only musicians can feel, that something had happened Something had to go through them, and something had to come out of them in music. All of this happened because God gives his people songs. Through the foolishness of preaching and through the foolishness of singing, God glorifies himself and equips us for the battles of life. These weapons may seem at times to be weak and foolish, especially to the world, but they are powerful in God's hands 
to create faith in us and to establish us firmly in the faith. It's for all these reasons and many more that the session has decided, the elders have decided that this Advent, we will preach four sermons in December based on four great Christmas hymns. Both pastors were surprised and excited to learn that Ligonier Ministries, totally unknown to us, had made this same decision and that this month's table talk is also based on Christmas hymns. So keep an eye out for that. Maybe they'll cover some of the same hymns. Maybe not. We'll have to see. I haven't really gotten a chance to look. But we begin today with let all mortal flesh keep silence. To uncover the great theology of this hymn, we'll read now Revelation 5. Please stand then as we read this wonderful chapter of Scripture. You remember how John was caught up into heaven in chapter 4, and now these words in chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on Father, we do come before 
your lamb who is worthy of our whole selves today. We pray that we might come in the spirit before him now and that we might be led to be silent in his presence out of full wonder and joy for who he was in his birth, death, and resurrection and how, who he is now as he stands in glory. Fill us with this kind of reverent awe and worship, we pray. Take away the distractions that gnaw at us. Take away the weakness of our flesh. Give us eyes to see him in his glory. For we pray it and ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let's All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent is an ancient hymn that may go back, probably goes back, all the way to the time of the apostles and specifically to the church in Jerusalem and the ministry of the apostle James who ministered there. We know for certain that it goes back at least to 347 A.D., So at the very least, it is around 1,700 years old. Now, with something that old, we cannot be sure of all the details, but we know that the church connected this hymn to Christmas and to the Lord's Supper, where, in the words of the hymn, Jesus descends with blessings in his hand. The hymn, as we have it in our hymnal today, is the work of English Christians, Anglicans, who in the 19th and early 20th centuries set these verses in order and paired them with a French melody. As our church musicians often point out to me, uh, pairing words with a tune is important work. And I think we can all agree that the French tune here, um, titled after the French region Picardy, is perfectly joined to these words. Incidentally, the French tune that you just sang was originally used in a song about a husband and wife, one of whom is going to heaven in three days and one of whom is going to hell in three days because of their different reactions to the poor and needy. So that's where the tune originally came from. Well, the history is fascinating, but far more important is the theology of the hymn, the truth of the hymn. In verses 3 and 4 especially, The hymn calls on us to see Jesus' birth and presence with us today from heaven's perspective. The hymn calls on us to enter into a holy, quiet awe and wonder. We're told in the third verse of the hymn to observe the armies in heaven as they stand in awe. We're told in verse 4 especially to look and observe the cherubim the angelic beings who stand closest to the throne and to see how they react to the Lamb, to Christ. Growing up, my father and mother did a wonderful job of celebrating Christmas. They kept the focus on Christ while at the same time filling our home with scripture verses. Quite literally, my dad could do calligraphy, so most of the doorways in our home at Christmas had calligraphy of Christmas verses over the doorway. greenery, a stunning real tree. Uh, To this day, my dad is the best holiday home decorator I've ever known. Uh, Now in my home on Christmas Eve, uh, when I was growing up, a sheet would go up in our hallway 
A crude alarm system made of pots and pans would be piled behind the sheet, ensuring that no child, probably me, is who they had in mind, honestly, <laughs> could sneak past and look at the presents before, uh, during the night before Christmas morning. In a family of five inquisitive, active kids, this was a real possibility. But then on Christmas morning, the sheet would go down and all would be revealed. Only then would we see all the presents, all the lights and decorations in their sort of final position. And there would be candles, and one candle especially that the youngest child would hold as the Bible was read, the Christmas story was read from the Bible, symbolizing the gospel moving from the older children to the younger children in our covenant family. Can you see with me then this morning that in Revelation 4 and 5, for just a moment, God pulls the sheet aside and says to John and us, look, look at who Jesus really is. And our hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, lingers in that moment and calls us to holy awe and wonder. It will come as no surprise to my kids or to many of you that I believe this to be the key, the key to Christmas. Christmas will have lasting impact on you only as far as it produces in you holy awe and wonder. You must become like the shepherds and angels. You must enter into their awe and their wonder. So come with me for a moment and with John behind the curtain. Leave aside all the distractions of this season. Forget your holiday calendar. Take off your shoes for this ground is holy and step behind the veil. This is the thrilling invitation that not only do I offer to you, but more importantly, God offered to John. For look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. God, like a loving father, has parted the curtain for a moment. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and look, behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. In one thrilling moment, John was empowered in the spirit to do something all of us dream of, but none of us will probably ever experience in this life. We will in the next. He goes behind the veil in a vision, or as John says here, in the spirit, he's allowed to look in heaven, into heaven. Now, please remember, as I've taught to you many other times, that what is going on in heaven is not, is not less real than our plane of reality, but rather is actually more real than what you're experiencing right now. This is the shadow world that is passing away quickly. That world, heaven, is where God's presence is far greater. The things in heaven are simply more real than the things of our life. That's why your life sometimes, if you think about it, feels a little like a dream, like it's slipping away quickly, because it is. Because this is a very real place here, but it is not the most real place. 
As Pastor Treskar says each week, the grass is withering and the flower is fading. It's passing. To get at this, the Bible calls the earth the footstool of God and heaven is his throne room. And that brings us to the key word in chapter 4. The key word is the word throne, occurring again and again. John is taken to what is the heart of heaven. It is the place where God is most present, more present than on earth. Heaven is where his throne actually is, as it were. Now, God, please understand this. God is a spirit and has not a body like men. So we should not think that heaven contains God. The scriptures clearly teach that all of heaven and earth, the psalmist says this, all of heaven and earth cannot contain God. Heaven and earth are realities he created. They don't contain him. And you'll notice even in this reading, as Elder Boyajan read it, uh, that John does not see God on the throne as a person, limited. There's no man or woman there sitting. It's a presence. God is real. He's a real person, but he's spiritual. And that spiritual presence is concentrated in the throne room of heaven. So heaven and earth are actually two created spheres or planes of reality in which God is present. He's created both realms and populated both realms, heaven with angels, earth with animals and people, but he is not located or contained in either one of them. However, his presence, his glory is more directly present or more obvious, we might say, in heaven. To convey this to us in a way that we can understand, the Holy Spirit describes it in terms of a kingdom. The king is everywhere. His rule extends to every corner of his realm, but the king is more present, if you will, in his throne room. By the way, if this helps, the Bible and Jewish tradition as well teach that the Holy of Holies in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, they say that that was, that was the exact location of the footstool of God on earth. And the New Testament, of course, predicts a day, Revelation does, when heaven and earth, these two planes of existence, merge into one and become one joined new heavens and new earth where God is so present, so clearly present in every inch of it, that there can no longer be sin or sorrow or struggle. And John says there will be no temple because there'll no, be no place where it needs to be concentrated. It will just permeate everything. That's what we're looking forward to. Now back to John, okay? As John enters the throne room, what he sees can bewilder us. But here is the key to getting it. What John sees in chapter 4 is a living summary of the whole of the Old Testament. John 4 is about a throne, and it's a throne that is surrounded by a living story of the Old Testament. He sees first, you notice, precious stones, and he names these different stones. And if you go through the book of Revelation, you will see that these various stones keep coming up. When the new heavens and new earth descends and comes together in heaven, these precious stones show up again. Another time we can go into this in detail, but for now, just know that many of those stones are those associated with the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and they're the same stones, many of them, that were found on the ephod, the breastplate that the high priest wore when he went into the Holy of Holies. And John would have known this and known what he was seeing. 
you'll notice another really important creational sign. There's a rainbow in heaven. God is the real rainbow warrior who punishes sin at the time of the flood and sets up a rainbow as a covenantal reminder of his mercy and his promises. Along with the stones and the rainbow, there is, John says, flashing and lightnings. There's this massive thunderstorm going on in the throne room. You see that in verse 5. Now, John knew immediately what this meant. Hopefully, some of you do too. Mount Sinai and the giving of the law to Moses is marked by a ginormous thunderstorm with lightning and fire. The people were terrified by what they saw going on on top of the mountain as Moses was going up there into the throne room spiritually and receiving revelation from God. So John was seeing these things. And notice also that the fire is present too. We're told there were seven torches, seven flames that represent the seven spirits of God. Seven is the number of fullness. It's a symbol. This is a vision, remember. It's a symbol of fullness. So think of the spirit of God going out as a flame. Think about Pentecost. When the New Testament church received the spirit and flames appeared over their head. Think about the burning bush that burned and was not consumed because the spirit of God was in it. To round out this vision of the throne room, John sees before God's throne what he calls in verse 6, a sea of glass. A sea of glass. Now remember, this might not mean a lot to us if we're not carefully reading our Old Testament, but remember, in the Old Testament which John knew so well, there was a huge container of water called the sea, which stood right outside the main temple structure. And it was for washing, it was for the priests to wash and use before one enters into the presence of God. So as he's caught up in heaven, he sees a magnificent sea of washing that can wash away sin. I'll just add that in there for now. We won't go into that. Before the throne for the washing of God's priestly people. So you can see this is, this is a throne room. It is the throne room of God the creator filled with Old Testament symbols. And it is designed to bring into focus the whole of the Old Covenant. The Old Testament focus continues as John then turns to those who stand around the throne. And there, closest to the throne, he sees what he can only describe as four living creatures. Four living creatures. Ezekiel calls them cherubim. Isaiah calls them seraphim. All three prophets, John, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, are allowed into the throne room, but none of them sees as much as John does. We'll see why that is in a moment. But notice that our Christmas hymn accurately represents this theology. The last verse of the hymn we just sung says, At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim, with sleepless eye. The author knows that these are the creatures closest to the throne of God and that they are both cherubim in Ezekiel and seraphim in Isaiah. So he uses both words in his hymn. John goes on to describe the work and appearance of these amazing creatures, beings. First, notice that they represent all of creation. One looks like a lion another like an ox, another a man, another an eagle. These are the same terms used in the covenant with Noah. They figuratively represent the whole of creation. One of them has the face of a man. 
because he represents our creation. He represents all manhood. Remember, heaven and earth are the creations of God. These beings who are closest to this throne represent all that work. But what are they there for? What are they there for? Well, notice, we're told in verse 6, these beings who represent all of creation are full of eyes. Remember, this is a vision. This is symbolic. Full of eyes means that they see everything. Nothing is hid from them. They have total knowledge. And so they cry out night and day, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who it was and is and is to come. This is the attribute of God that stands above all others. He is absolutely holy. His love is holy. His anger is holy. His knowledge is holy. Everything is pure with him, and there is no shadow of turning. These cherubim or seraphim stand at the throne of creation, closest to it. Sometimes above it, they're pictured, sometimes below. But they proclaim this message day and night. They never cease, John says. Their mission, then, is to notice the holiness of God constantly and proclaim it in worship. But they also act as guards. That's why they're full of eyes. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, the way back into the garden was blocked by cherubim with flaming swords. The cherubim are then carved over the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and once again, as pictured as guardians of God's holiness. But lastly, notice in verse 9, they are also worship leaders. Look at verse 9. And whenever the living creatures, these cherubim, give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The 24 elders are either men or angels. We're not sure, but what everyone agrees on is that they represent all the people of God in the Old Testament and New Testament. You have 12 tribes of Israel, right? And you have the 12 apostles of Christ. And it may not be those exact people, but the 24 here represent all believers. And they are near the throne, worshiping the Lord on our behalf. That's why they also have harps. And you notice they have these incense uh, containers, which are the prayers of all the people of God as they are near the throne. Uh, One last thing, in keeping with this whole throne room, you notice the cherubim lead them to worship God primarily as holy creator. Look again at verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, so, so far, so good, hopefully. We have the throne room of God, the Father, as holy creator. We have all the people of God and the cherubim and the angels. We have Sinai. We have a rainbow. We have the stones of the Garden of Eden. Everything is there. Ezekiel and Isaiah were both allowed, the Old Testament prophets, to see some of this. But now suddenly, and you have to grasp this. Remember, the chapter divisions are not in the original text of Scripture. Suddenly, in chapter 5, verse 1, something new happens, a new song. Remember that Isaiah promised a new song? Look at verse 1. 
of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Let me cheat here a little bit for time's sake. I think everyone agrees that the scroll here that God the Father is holding is the story of redemptive history. It's a story of everything that's going to happen after the resurrection of Jesus. It's everything that will happen from now till Christ's return. It's God's plan for time and reality. It's written front and back. That's not usually what you did with a scroll in their tradition, in their uh, culture. But it is written front and back to symbolize that it is done. It's a done deal, we might say. Nothing is being added. There are no margins where you can write a different ending. God has decided exactly what's going to happen. But there is a problem. There is a problem. The Father has the plan. The Father who is sitting here enthroned by the cherubim in creation glory, and they're all crying out about his holiness, his power as creator. He has the plan. It's complete. But who is worthy to open it? As throne is the key word of chapter 4, the key word repeated again and again in chapter 5 is worthy. Who is worthy to put the plan into action, to take the scroll and unfold history? Who has the authority, the power, the wisdom, and holiness to approach the throne, the throne of God the Father, and take the scroll and guide all of human history? God wants John and us today to feel the power of this question. So the angel in verses 2 and 3, chapter 5, calls for, he announces, he looks for a worthy one, a worthy one in heaven, earth, and even the grave is searched for someone who can unseal God's plan and put it into action, someone to steer the ship, so to speak. When initially no one is found, John begins, verse 4, to weep loudly, to weep loudly. Can I pause here a moment? Without Jesus, if, if you deny Jesus, without Jesus, our history, our human history is pointless. It is meaningless. We're just going to live a little longer and die and eventually our world will burn out and no one will remember and no one will care. We may be very different people today than John was at that moment, but we should weep for anyone who believes that life and history are a scroll unopened, meaningless and random. This is the sense that any person should have, loud weeping if there is not someone to unlock history. If what is going to happen next is not part of a plan, if we're just waiting for the sun to nuke us or freeze us over one or the other, and no one's going to remember your name and you will never see your loved ones again, and it's all just an ocean of meaninglessness, what's the only response to that? Weeping. And so as no one is there, John is left for just one moment in the hopelessness of human history apart from Jesus Christ. It's meaninglessness. And in it, he begins, the language here is to just basically wail with agony and concern. Thankfully, though, God... God allowed that moment to show us something, but very quickly, thankfully, one of the elders uh, taps John on the shoulder, whatever, and says, don't worry. 
Behold, the Lion of Judah and the Branch of David. It's at this point that we expect to see Jesus riding in on a great stallion in golden armor, but we can almost imagine the gasp of surprise and wonder John felt, and maybe even some of those in heaven felt, when suddenly in the throne room of creation, there appears not a lion, but a lamb full of wounds and scars. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures, even closer to the throne than the cherubim, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Here, brothers and sisters, get this. Here is the wonder of heaven. Here is the greatest thing a Christian can ever hope for. When I'm dead and gone or not a pastor anymore, if you remember nothing else I ever said or taught, I hope you and I hope my children remember this one thing. Jesus is the joy and wonder of heaven. And there he stands in our wounds, in the wounds of our sin, the scars still upon him. He chose to carry our scars and wounds in life, and now in heaven they are indelible signs of his love. And how the angels and believers must marvel and wonder that one so great, one by the throne, who commands them and whose beauty fills the whole realm of heaven is a lamb with scars. The response of heaven is stunning. Don't miss it. Jesus takes the scroll. The lamb takes the scroll. scroll. Jesus says, as it were, yes, this is mine. I will fulfill the plan of the Father. I will guide all of history. It will be my history. This will be my story. And in response, the 24 elders collapse in worship. The prayers of all believers are offered up at this moment. All the prayers of all the people of God through all of history are offered up to move this story forward through the power and glory of the Lamb. Because we are all praying, aren't we, all the time that Christ would return, which is just another way of saying we are always planning that the plan, praying that the plan will come about And as they're doing all this, they take up a song. They take up a song. And the first verse of the song is found in verse 9. Worthy. They grab that word. Remember our word for this chapter. Worthy are you to take the scroll. And then again, we get a second verse of the hymn in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures of our hymn, the seraphim and cherubim, they said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Step back with me now for a moment. We've seen the throne room and all its Old Testament and creational glory. Chapter 4, briefly. We see in chapter 5 how the Lamb suddenly appears to unfold the plan of history and how the Lamb is immediately worshipped as God along with the Father upon the throne. But what just happened here? 
What just happened here? You see, the hymn got it. Let all mortal flesh. It nailed it. It really did. In chapter 5, the worship given to God the Father as holy, holy creator. As God of Mount Sinai in the temple, that worship is then given to the Lamb. They sing a new song. And they say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb to receive the glory. And seraphim and cherubim, those closest to the throne, along with every being in the throne room, join the song with a loud voice. And this is why, and this is why, you must keep Christmas with wonder and awe. You can enjoy the lights and the parties when, when and as appropriate. But that cannot be what Christmas means to you. The joy of Christmas is not being with that special person you love. The joy of Christmas is not uh, coming home for mom's special recipes. The joy of Christmas uh, is not falling in love or falling out of love in some of our Christmas carols. The joy of Christmas is the awe that God himself, the God who sits enthroned on the rainbow, came down and became a lamb for us. It's the job of the pastors and the elders of our church as shepherds to guard the flock, to cast a wall around them. That's literally what shepherds did in the ancient world. They would gather, sometimes they would stop in the middle of a valley or somewhere, and they would gather thorns and build a makeshift wall around their flock to protect them. Well, these songs are my wall you. These songs with the word of God in them are the walls we as pastors erect around our beloved congregation to guard you from wolves and to guard you from wandering. It's our sincere prayer that these sermons, the series that we're doing and the hymns will be used by God to defend you this Christmas, to defend you against the creeping power of consumerism and the garish emptiness of a secular Christmas. May they also encourage those who are sick and give hope to those who are discouraged. Your story, your story is not meaningless, and death can only bring you into the throne room. Jesus has taken the scroll. He will see it done. He will never leave you or forsake you. So do you see, this is how Christmas should always begin. The first response to Christmas should not be the noise of parades or the ring of cash registers, but silence, kneeling wonder. Here, as I've told you earlier, is the, cre the key to having a really meaningful Christmas. Holy, reverent awe and wonder. To survive the commercialization to survive the garish celebrations and the vacuous, endlessly vacuous secular Christmas music, you will need this above everything else, a renewed holy wonder. May the Lord, through his hymns, through the preaching of his word, protect you from these things and make this memorable for you and for your families as you kneel before the King of Kings and join your heart with the hearts of the cherubim and the angels and the elders in holy and reverent joy. Let's pray. Father, we begin then our celebration of your son's birth 
with this sermon and with this vision of heaven, may it not be lost to us in the month to come. May we and our children together see and understand the true meaning of Christmas, and may we stand in amazement and awe of all that you have done through Christ our Savior. Open our hearts and our eyes to see him in his glory, to see him as he truly is, to understand the deep things of this season. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.